Welcome to One Does Not Simply, where three friends take on the Lord of the Rings and go on some unexpected journeys. I'm Wanda. I'm Navia. And I'm Ashani. This is One Does Not Simply Off-Road It. Okay, so chapters four and five. Um, all right, so not a lot happens in these chapters. Pretty much we get some more walking uh, through the Shire. Uh, Frodo decides to go off the road, uh, presumably to avoid the Black Riders, and they basically do some some wandering around the like brambles of the Shire and end up uh, in Farmer Maggot's, I guess, fields that he, he has. And... We get a little bit of background about Frodo being kind of scared of Farmer Maggot, but he ends up being this really charming hobbit that treats them to dinner. They have a nice little supper, and then they go to uh, Buckleberry Ferry, which, at which point they meet up with Mary. Uh, so many rhymes. Buckleberry Ferry Mary. <laughs> and then they end up basically at the uh, at, at Buckland, which is where Mary and all of the Brandy Bucks live. Um, and this is the point at which the the real group, the core group forms of Sam, Mary, and Pippin deciding that they're going to go with Frodo on this adventure that they actually kind of knew about already. And um, they basically decide to set off in the morning. Uh, we get some really cute like background of, you know, them taking baths and and <laughs> some things about stealing mushrooms, but... In general, like not a lot of plot furthering happens in this chapter other than just that main big decision of the the four of them setting out on this journey. Um, there are technically five of them. Fatty Bulger is there, but he doesn't go with them. I guess like the last thing that I will say is that the timing of this chapter, of these two chapters was really perfect in my life because I have just adopted two little kittens and their names are Mary and Pippin. And as Mary and Pippin have become a part of Frodo and Sam's journey, the kittens Mary and Pippin are now part of mine. Um, a shameless, a shameless... Shameless play. plug. <laughs> yeah. Um, we, they I guess, named like, the kittens to plug the podcast. That, how dare you? <laughs> Wanda wanted me to name them like more Old Toby and Smeagol. names. Old Toby and Smeagol, I think, <laughs> I think you said Mary and Pippin were too basic, which, come on, man. <laughs> I don't think Friendship I said that. Over. I yeah, you did. That. yeah, you did. You definitely I did. I think basic. it's like in our chat for posterity. I can't even look at it. I never, I never said basic. It's basic of you that you assume that that's what I said. That's crazy. I'm, I mean, we might have it on a recording. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, uh, be careful. Content. What? Okay, if you subscribe, uh, subscribe to the Patreon, and you'll get, uh, you'll get a a uh, exclusive view at whether or not <laughs> Wait, whether or we'll not post I really the did receipts say. on what you said. Yeah, we'll post the receipts. Our Patreon. <laughs> oh my god. When we do drop this episode, though, I will post some kitty pics on our social media for anyone who's interested in the lives of Mary and Pip and the cats. So how did you guys feel about these chapters? Um, interesting, not interesting, necessary? 
I really liked them, but that's because I'm a sucker for found family tropes and friendship and the magic thereof. And there was a lot of that in these chapters. Most of what Ashani likes uh, in books is friendship. (laughs) Yeah, this was definitely, it felt heartwarming to read. Um, (laughs) I... I liked the the dynamic of the friendship, but I did not particularly appreciate like just even more description of walking around the Shire. Like, I get it. It's the Shire. You don't have to tell us like where every single road leads. Like it, it felt like a Google Maps directions to like take a right here and then you'll end up at Buckleberry Ferry and then you'll cut like I don't care. I, I'll look at the map, Tolkien. Like, why is this here? I I don't know that I See, I broke my notes up by chapter, right? And so I didn't really feel that way in chapter four. And I did a little bit in chapter five, but there was only one specific section. And I was surprised that it was actually only one specific section where I did feel that way. And it was where he starts talking about the history of the Brandy Bucks and that there's this hedge that borders their lands and like <laughs> here's how they built their house and then here's where they expanded their property as they like gentrified the neighborhood blah 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 um, and that was the one part where I kind of went yeah this sh- shit could have been saved for an appendix but everything else I I liked because I felt like we got a, a good description it wasn't so much about the description of the Shire but it was the bickering and the little bits of interaction between Frodo and Pippin or Frodo and Sam or Sam and Pippin that I really enjoyed. Yeah, I I think it's it's interesting. I think we like we each liked the parts that we just kind of related to because I actually really enjoyed the the description of like this brandy book home that they kind of expanded over time mostly because it just reminded me of like this dream that my mom has always had where she's like oh I want to go and like build a huge farm in India and then like build little houses on the property for like each of my siblings and their extended family and like this is a pipe dream like my mom's family is spread all over the world but it's a really adorable concept like just the idea of building this family all in one place and like having everyone you know have their own spaces but be interconnected in that way um and it seemed like you Ishani from your just from like what we were talking about earlier you you kind of related to the whole like wandering around the wilderness and like running into brambles and stuff i i did relate to that i don't know that i related to that in a good way um but yeah so we all grew up in the pacific northwest uh at least partially and uh there is nothing more pacific northwest than being like oh this looks like a path and then 30 seconds later you're like i have mud up to my knees and blackberry scratches all over and i hate it (laughs) yeah the pacific northwest especially like when we were growing up was uh, i i like remember it i remember it as as being like urban areas that were like half overgrown with ivy and other climbing plants um like like partially because it was not very populated, like people would leave property behind for years and then it would just, it would just become this like, this just like wild looking space. Um, and there was like, yeah, there was like a lot of that, like that combined with the fact that like, I think that like a majority of the parks where we grew up were, um, were like not super structured and were basically just, just wilderness, just a, just a cordoned off wilderness area, um, made it, um, 
gave the whole thing kind of like a like a like a wild feel when you would walk around and yeah there was like a lot of you get like a lot of uh a lot of lesions and a lot of bites if you were if you were just a kid hanging out it's funny ashani that you have that you don't have like positive associations with that though because i i don't know that i like deeply enjoyed it at the time um especially when you know we would go on like school sanctioned trips into the outdoors and things like that i i was i remember being like fairly miserable in the moment but also those are some of like the most formative memories of my of my childhood and i feel like in the same way here like these characters aren't necessarily like having a great time in the moment but like this is clearly an adventure and this is going to be you know the formative experience of their life i liked my adventures indoors in the library as a kid <laughs> i'm just going to say that like that's the sort of kid i was not that i didn't mind like there were times when i would go outside and i would enjoy it but I don't know that I gained that appreciation until I got a little bit older, like late high school, college age. And now I really like being outdoors and going on hikes and stuff. And so reading it now, I really enjoyed that feeling of like you and a couple of friends are you don't have a, necessarily a set plan in mind. You're just going to go and wander and see what you find and and what you come across and and where you end up. Um, and that's an experience that more recently I've had and really liked. And so in that sense, I think I enjoyed seeing that same feeling here. This chapter is funny because I um, I kept having to remember, I kept having to remember throughout the chapters that they have gotten themselves into this position of like, bushwhacking through the Shire through a series of really like a, like a strange series of errors. Right. Um, like Frodo does, I, I don't think that Frodo ever anticipated this being a dangerous part of his journey. He just says, I don't want to drive. I'd like to walk because it seems romantic. And, uh, and I don't want people to, I don't want people in the Shire to like generally know where I am. I'd like to like, not, I'd like to not meet up with people, uh, and be like thronged by by gossiping fans while I'm on the road to Buckland, right? Like that's that's like his whole reason for for basically hiking to Buckland rather than driving. And it's only he might even explicitly say at some point, like, or the narration might explicitly say, like he wasn't expecting they weren't expecting this part of the trip to be at all dangerous. Yeah, I mean, I think it's easy to forget, like, they're literally still in the Shire. Like, they they have not even left the territory that they're super familiar with and, like, know about and have been to already. And already for, like, the tension to be building in this way with the appearance of, of this, like, villainous creature. And then, you know, with just, I guess, a, a decision made on the spur of the moment to leave the road without realizing what that really meant. Um I feel like <laughs> you get the sense in this chapter that like they still do not understand what they're dealing with, especially Pippin. I mean, he's he's basically like he's just like, oh, haha, like you think we'll see the writers again? And I think he like chuckles about it. And I'm just like, Pippin, what? <laughs> you don't get it at all. You know, in the movies, if you watch the movies before you read the books, you get the impression that Pippin and Mary are just kind of these bumbling comic relief uh, sidekicks that hang around 
um, until maybe like halfway through the quest when they take on uh, like subplots of their own and they become they become important in their own way. They're almost they're almost redeemed as members of the fellowship because they because they become important in Rohan and Gondor respectively. But here, I think you get a lot more explanation as to as to who they are, and you both get. Um, you both get a lot of backstory in chapter five about um, that, that shows you that they're a lot smarter um, and and cleverer than than you might have thought if you just watched the movies. And you also realize that part of the reason that they don't that they're kind of blip about the Black Riders is because they have no idea what's going on. I mean, and that was the. Um, like, as I was saying, like Frodo initially sets out and basically tells everybody else, like, yeah, we're basically going on this long hike because I don't want to be seen by other hobbits. Um, it's going to be fine. He does not tell Pippin anything about the ring. Um, there's really no context that those, that, that Pippin and Mary are given. Um, and so far from being like these, these like bumbling fools, they're just, they're just the hobbits that have the least context at this point. No, but I think you made a really good point about how in this chapter or in these chapters, plural, we kind of see that Pippin and Mary are not just here to be comic relief. They're actually really smart and kind of sneaky in figuring out a surprising amount of information, given that they are the hobbits with the least context, right? They All the context they have they basically had to get or figure out for themselves and they've done a really good job with it. they're surprisingly like competent in this chapter and the first time we see it is when is this interaction with farmer maggot where suddenly like frodo just reverts into his childhood self of like being scared of stealing mushrooms from farmer maggot and then pippin is kind of just like what are you doing man like let's all, we're all adults here and he just you know greets farmer maggot who by the way the movies did farmer maggot dirty like he's he's a totally <laughs> reasonable and charming hobbit in this like all you see of him in the movies is like this scythe coming through the fields at them and, and he's like this scary person but um yeah i i felt that like the impact of the eventual breaking of the fellowship is actually much more important when you see how much like these other members actually contri contribute to this group because in the movies you're kind of just like oh well Frodo and Sam already had their special thing and Merry and Pippin already had their special thing so yeah it makes sense for them to go in different directions but here they're like no they're they're a core group and they're all contributing like pretty important aspects to the journey and so it makes that like decision to go off like a lot more I mean, it probably more difficult to make. Mary and Pippin do contribute a lot. And so does Sam. I mean, Sam is like underratedly smart in this chapter, especially with his description of their interaction with the elves. I mean, we talked last episode about, you know, how it's kind of uncomfortable to watch them just be so in awe of, of these beings that are like kind of treating them not great. And, um, and then to hear Sam describe it as like, oh, like, I found it really amazing to just watch them, but like I didn't. It's not about whether I like them or not. Like they're they're beyond my liking or disliking, right? They're just. I think his literal quote is "elves are above my likes and dislikes," and I felt like that was a very shrewd ob observation on Sam's part of just like. It there's a difference between you know 
watching something and seeing something unfold that you've always wanted to see in your life and and being and wondering at your ability to witness it versus just like being weirdly reverent of of people who are you know who don't care about you inherently yeah i really liked that i i really enjoyed not only that sam is to me i read it as he's insightful enough to sort of realize that his perspective and the elf's perspective, they're so different that it doesn't even really matter what his opinion is of them, but it also doesn't really matter what their opinion is of him. He sort of shrugs off the fact that when he tells the elves, like, I'm going to go with him and anything that tries to harm Frodo is going to have to get through me and they laugh at him. He's like, well, and that's fine because we just, we have such widely I I keep saying different right but like widely disparate viewpoints and experiences that it doesn't really matter and that's very grown up of him I think and then like immediately afterwards he's sort of sitting there going and I feel like I have to come with you because it's not that I want to see more it's not even really about wanting it's about this need to follow through and to finish the thing that you've started. And, you know, we sort of talked about, oh, Sam is the responsible one. And even here, like, how do they make it on their own? And I think part of it has to be, and, you know, no small part of it has to be attributed to the fact that Sam not only has a lot of insight and awareness, but he's really got that solid core of, I know that this matters. And so I'm going to do it. I, when I read that, when I read that section where he's talking about his impressions of the elves, I read it a little bit differently. And I was, when I was reading it, I was thinking about experiences that I've had when I've achieved something or I've gotten to experience something that I've been looking forward to for a long time. And in the immediate aftermath of that, you sort of have to contend with the fact that you're still the person that you were before you had this experience. Um, and because of that, your perception of the thing that, it, that you experienced or the person that you encountered really shifts, right? Um, and you're not, I mean, this is sort of like a sad fact about human life, right? That, that typically ex- like, uh, achieving something or, or arriving at some endpoint that you thought was going to be um, orgasmically good doesn't really have that effect on you. Usually it's, usually it's this disorienting feeling of, um, hypersensitivity or, or maybe, maybe you feel at peace, but it's not, it's not like a, it's not a feeling of ecstasy. I think 99% of the time, um, most of the time, at least for me, it's, it's the most bizarre part of any kind of journey or any kind of trajectory towards, towards achieving a thing. And it seems like what's weird about this whole experience for Sam is that he expected to see elves for the first time when they got to Rivendell and he's barely out of the door and they've just, they've just had dinner and bunked with the elves for a night. And now he has to sort of figure out, um, okay, like I, I guess I did the thing that I, that was going to, you know, fulfill my ambitions most about this journey. And for some reason I still keep like, want to keep going. And now it looks, it looks darker and it looks a little bit more mixed, um, going forward. But, 
but that's no reason to turn back. So what was your response to that, Wanda? Hmm, that's a good question. Uh, ooh, I don't know. Um, I think I felt, I felt just strongly sympathetic with him, maybe a little bit sad because I know how that feels. Um, and that can be like a, that can be like a sad thing to have happen to you. But it also, it also made me feel, it was also a comforting thing, right. To realize like, Oh, this, you know, that's an experience that if, 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 if J.R.R. Tolkien can write about a fictional character having this experience, then it is certainly valid for me to achieve some things every once in a while to, to every once in a while achieve something that is underwhelming when I actually get to the point of being there. This, this really like foreshadows how, you know, Frodo is going to feel and how Bilbo felt about the journeys that they went on because, you know, they had this, this huge adventure that they went on and that no other hobbits have ever experienced anything like it. And they accomplished something unimaginable to the rest of the inhabitants of the Shire. Right. I mean, Bilbo, like, literally reinstated the entire race of dwarves in his in his quest and um and he happened to stumble upon this ring but that's kind of irrelevant to his adventure and and to have him come back and be like i don't know what to do now like i don't really i it's not enough right what do i do now where do i go now and i i really feel a a sense of I, I really relate to that that feeling of like I, I'm a very goal oriented person in general and so like I'm very driven by having these things that I want to get done and when I get them done I do feel this sense of accomplishment but immediately the the follow up is like great what's the next thing now do you feel like a sense of like what d- does your sense of accomplishment feel um like when you say that you feel a sense of accomplishment, like do you typically like when you finish something, is it is it a pretty uncomplicated feeling of like okay great I'm I'm so happy that I finished this, um, and now we're going to close the door because that's like for me that is so difficult to do. It's there's like with every accomplishment there's this grieving process that happens afterwards where I'm I'm like oh I, I invested so much of myself in this. Um, what kinds of accomplishments, sorry, what kind of accomplishments are we talking about? <laughs> I, like, for me, when I talk about goals, right, they can be on any scale. Like, it could be, like, I finished this this task that I had to do for work today, or it could be, like, I successfully bought a house or whatever it is, right? Like, they could be long, long works in progress or just things that I got done that day, but I feel like I, I'm driven every day by the sense of what I need to get done. And and Wanda, in answer to your question, I, I don't feel, no, there is no like sense of immediate resolution of just like closing the door on this. And in, in a way it's like, it's okay, in a really dumb way, it's kind of like when you start watching like a series on Netflix and you binge the entire thing and you finish it and then you get to the end and you're kind of like, it, it this you suddenly have this emptiness where that thing was and it doesn't feel great. Hello, can I introduce you to the world of fan fiction? <laughs> uh, fan fiction. I don't think, I don't think you're ending. introducing us, Ishani. <laughs> no, no, no. But also, let me introduce you to this idea of I've just come up with of fan fiction for your real life accomplishments. Oh my god. 
I, le- I really like <laughs> no, that. But I mean, like, genuinely, I, I say that as a joke. And also, I think the the serious take on it would be that I think a lot of people probably do experience that where they finish something or they achieve a goal or a milestone in real life. And then not only do they kind of think about, well, what's next, but... I think for some folks, that process also involves kind of looking back and going, oh, uh, would I have done things differently? Or can I imagine what this would look like if I had made a different choice or if I had done this in another way? And would I feel more satisfied? Would I feel less satisfied if I had done those things? I think that's like, that's so funny that you bring that up because that to me is is the paradox of a lot of fan fiction that, I mean, especially with a story like this, eventually it ends and you get all these descriptions of how the characters are like, wow, it's done. We finally, we finally did it. Um, and now we all feel, uh, now we all feel this uh, like gripping loneliness and, and sense of a void that we're going to have to deal with for the rest of our earthly lives. And, people's response is, well, the characters can grapple with the, the, the sense of an ending, but I don't have to, uh, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to create some Legolas on Aragorn fan fiction. Um, so I, so the story never has to be over for me. Uh, Wanda, you say this as somebody who never really got into fan fiction though. And <laughs> <laughs> the thing that a lot of people like about stories that end the way the Lord of the Rings ends is that it doesn't end with, and now here is how everybody's life wraps up a hundred percent. Like here is everything that happens to them. And then they live happily ever after. It is very much this ending of like, yes, I know the gray Havens is a metaphor for heaven, whatever. Like, but there is this sense of, these characters have to find a way to go on after their stories stop being told on the page, right? That there is, you see it in the movies too, right? Like it's not the movies with their nine different endings, right? But it is about taking that breath and then going, okay, and now we do kind of have to pick it back up again because it's not everything is so beautifully wrapped up with a bow and here all these characters die at the ripe old age of whatever their respective ripe old age is with their you know, <laughs> lawfully wedded spouse and their 2.5 kids and their white picket fence. It's, oh, okay, and now Sam has bid farewell to his best friend, this person who went through this really indescribable experience with him and he has to find a way to keep going. I mean, we don't even have to look to fan fiction for that continuation. Like, I mean, Tolkien does this himself, right? He he, he wasn't done when he finished the book. He was like, mm, now appendices, because I want to tell you actually what happened to all these characters that I created. And, and that's how we find out about, like, the end of Aragorn's life and things like that. But I, I actually think that the, the reason for fan fiction existing is a lot more straightforward than wanting a story to continue or anything like that. I mean, I think people people write fan fiction because it's 
I mean, they have these ideas and these creativity, but they can do it in a world where like the characters are already established and people who aren't necessarily not good enough writers, but maybe experienced enough writers to do that world building themselves can basically use it as a creative outlet to play around with characters that someone else has created. And then I think for, as far as like why people read fan fiction, I think it's just as simple as like they're not ready to be done with a world that they've kind of immersed themselves in once they finish the canon part of it. Like, it's not that they w are desperate to know what happened after the fact, it's just like they're not ready to say goodbye to it. And as somebody who does read quite a lot of fan fiction still and writes less frequently than I should be, but still occasionally, like, it isn't even necessarily about canon sometimes, right? I don't know that we can even, I don't think it's fair to the multitudes of fanfic or the authors out there who produce it to say, oh, this is the one reason why people write fan fiction and this is the one reason why people consume it. Because sometimes it's, hey, nobody in published media tells the stories that I want to read because that's not what sells or that's not what people think sells. And so I have to find it. Yeah, I mean, you have to ask yourself, why is the majority of fan fiction like slash, right? And and maybe it's because that representation is just lacking in the actual canon and so right. you have to create or it. Or things like explorations of trauma or explorations of sexuality that aren't just I mean even now it's like when we talk about queer films, queer films are almost exclusively about like we have stories about trans folks, we have stories about gay people, and we have stories about lesbian people. And like, where are the stories about people who are poly? Or where are the stories about people who are ace or non-binary or like multiple identities there? Because those stories you don't find in traditionally published books or traditionally made movies. Even the indie ones, you don't find those stories. So what's the, like, you know, because you guys do enjoy fan fiction a lot more than I ever have, like, what's the, what's the appeal of, um, like, reading these stories, I guess, set in a world and using characters that have already been written about? So I don't read fan fiction anymore. Um, I used to read a lot of it, especially like in high school days. Um, and I think what I what I was looking for with the like world that already existed and the characters that already existed was it when you pick up a new series, right? You there is a level of effort that you go through initially to imagine the world for yourself and build up the characters in your head and visualize it in a way and not that that's a bad thing i mean that's the best part about books but it is some effort that you put in and when you read a really really good series and i'm just speaking for myself here and why i found fan fiction interesting but when you when i would read a really really good series and i would get kind of attached to these visualizations of these characters and and the stories i had formed around them and things like that I wanted that familiarity of like getting to spend a little bit more time with them. And that's what drew me to fan fiction is not necessarily like looking for more stories, but more just like getting to spend more time in a world that I really liked. Yeah, I would say that's definitely a part of it. Um, that sometimes it's, 
hey, I really like this world and these people, and I want to spend more time here. Sometimes it's, I've been so invested in these characters for so long, and the most recent installment of this series did them wrong, so screw it. Like, canon can go <laughs> burn in a garbage fire, and fanfic will make things better. Looking at you, like, several major franchises not to be named. Genuinely, <laughs> there are times where I think people turn to fanfiction because they feel really disappointed by what canon had to offer and with a series like lord of the rings where canon is not currently being produced right canon is set um and and won't really change i mean you can argue about like book versus movie canon but let's just say like original canon is set nothing's going to be added to it it is done there is something about what kinds of stories might be told in this world, like often fandoms will develop certain fandom specific tropes or really common story elements or even just story premises. And so, you know, you know that if, for instance, you want to read a lot of like college student experiences like you want to read stories about college students and maybe college students who are involved in political activism and social justice well great the Les Mis fandom is the place for you right or if you want to read about a fantasy world where people have to overcome a lot of like prejudice or bias and do some growing themselves so that they can be with the person that they care about. Well, hey, Legolas and Gimli, right, are sort of a, a massive ship in the Lord of the Rings fandom world for that reason, because people want to read that particular kind of story. And that's what gets produced in that fandom. Okay, we can't we can't leave this conversation about fanfic without talking about the Lord of the Rings fanfic, though. <laughs> yeah, uh, right, right. This is a story, right? So when I was in fifth grade, um, I think, Navi, I think we were all going to school together at that point. Yeah. So yeah, so so I was in fifth grade. The rest of the country, uh, in their uh, uh, probably of adult age, was thinking about, you know. Uh, the presidency of George W. Bush and the war on terror. I was preoccupied with uh, a piece of, I think what can only very generously be called fan fiction about Lord of the Rings <laughs> that my friend had sent me called The Secret Diaries from Lord of the Rings. Um, I would be thrilled to find out that someone else has seen this. Um, it's it's essentially just a, a, a diary style play-by-play -play of the Fellowship of the Ring um, written from various characters' points of view. And the whole point is just to make gay jokes about the different members of the Fellowship and, uh, and like, various other, like, preteen-style sex jokes. So, like, like, a, like an excerpt is uh, from, from Aragorn's Secret Diary, Day 28, beginning to find Frodo disturbingly attractive, hairy feet kind of a turnoff. Um, I thought uh, when I was 11 years old this was so funny um, that I decided to print it out and circulate it among my friends. Um, and ultimately it got back up to a teacher or something and somebody called all the moms um, and was describing this thing that was going around. And I actually can't imagine how weird it must have been for my parents 
my dad, especially, uh, who had, for whom the Lord of the Rings was a quasi sacred text growing up and who learned Elvish to find out that his, his 11 year old daughter was circulating, was circulating, uh, like, like a pastiche of the Lord of the Rings that exclusively existed to make gay jokes. Um, it was really embarrassing for me. I think I blamed it on somebody else. Well, I mean, I think you, you have, the the existence of, of this particular crude fanfic is is kind of like we didn't really talk about the other implicit reason for fanfiction existing and for people reading it, which is that a lot of it is R-rated. It's a lot of it is X-rated and oh it it's reading porn, right? <laughs> like we we can't ignore that there's a lot of smut out there. Right. I mean, honestly, like probably, probably what's going on is that like, I'm saying more about myself and the kind of fan fiction that I read back when I like did read like a little bit of it than I am about fan fiction in general, which I haven't explored very much. <laughs> yeah. I feel like there that so little happened in these chapters that we ended up having a full conversation about fan fiction instead. But what we haven't gotten to talk about at all because we've been talking about fan fiction is the friendship of the of the four hobbits. Yeah, let's let's uh, let's address like this dynamic because we I think we all found it absolutely delightful. This depiction of friendship is so pure. It's real good. I really, yeah, I mean, I think what I liked about it was that there was sort of this really genuine and sincere balance to the fact that these characters could rag on each other and then be really sweet in the same moment, you know, or really sort of rely on each other, even as they're throwing in these jokes or this this teasing, um, you know, like... Frodo and Pippin in chapter four have this really sort of logical, like, we got to plan what way we're going to go back and forth about Frodo says, let's take a shortcut. And Pippin is going, eh, it's actually going to slow us down if we take a shortcut. We're going to get stuck somewhere. Like, the ground is going to be, it's going to be rougher terrain. And, like, I think we should stick to the road. And then in there, Frodo is like, well, we definitely can't take the road because if you stop at an inn, we're, like, never going to keep going. Um, you know, and, like, that's the sort of thing that I I really enjoyed because there's this balance between, like, they can tease each other about things. They've known each other for long enough to do that. And then at the same time, Gosh, Mary's speech in chapter five was so good. It was so good where he's just like, you can trust us to keep your secrets and you can trust us to be there for you. And you absolutely cannot trust us to let you go off on your own because we won't do that. Yeah. So, I mean, let's take a second to discuss what happened here with Mary and Pippin and and Sam and basically them spying on Frodo. So... We basically get this um, this revelation that Mary knows about Frodo leaving, and even more, he knows about the ring, which is bizarre. Um, I didn't remember this happening at all. But basically, like Mary and Pippin and Sam have been kind of keeping tabs on Frodo this whole time, and and Mary has even spied on Bilbo to the extent of going to read his book when he thought he wasn't looking, or 
like seeing him put the ring in his pocket after he's disappeared at some point. And so you get this sense of like, oh, they've known for a very long time that something was up. And especially when Pippin describes the lack of subtlety, you're kind of like, okay, how could they not have known? Because Gandalf is hanging around all the time, right? Something is clearly going on. And um, I love the the revelation of Sam as like the ultimate spy master of the the person who is actually like every time he's pretending to be asleep, he's actually listening to Frodo and and pe- putting pieces together from that. But yeah, we get this like this basically this this reveal that they know exactly what's happening and they've already decided that they're going with Frodo. Yeah, like so so Sam, it was like like the way that I interpreted it. Um, like when Sam was spying on Frodo and Gandalf at the very beginning of the story, that that was actually like the most recent in like a number of instances where he had been spying on Frodo and Gandalf. And that was just the only time that he got caught. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's funny because we always see it as this like accidental, like he was just cutting the grass because he's so innocent, but no, this is, this is a very deliberate attempt to find out what's happening with this, with these Bagginses. Also, can I just say that's like straight out of like mystery spy heist movie tropes is nobody ever looks twice at the help. (laughs) And I love that it shows up here because, yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I also did not remember that Sam had been purposefully spying on Frodo to get this information. And so not only does it change Frodo's perception of what's been going on, but it really changed mine too. I think that like every interaction that this group of friends had struck me as a very sibling-like dynamic. Like it was very much of that playful, like there's definitely almost like a biting undertone in there sometimes, uh, especially when Pippin is just annoying Frodo with all these questions. But then there's like this deep, deep connection that runs way deeper than any of the like small disagreements they might have of just like, we have your back, right? Like no matter what is going on, we do have your back. And that is something where like, I always perceive it as a, a family type of connection because, you know, in a lot of ways, like that unconditional love is something that most people experience for the first time, if, if they're lucky from their families. I think that's definitely like they, they, um, they seem to be like, you know, they seem to have each other's backs through thick and thin. And yet at the same time, um, the more I read about, the more I read of this chapter where they disclose having been spying on Frodo and the more that I thought about it, um, the, the harder it seemed to me to think of these four hobbits as friends with um, these sort of equal relationships, right? Where they have like a parody with each other. Um, first, because um, because Frodo is older than all of the other ones, right? I think with maybe with the exception of Sam, is Sam as old as Frodo? I don't think we have. Don't we know, know how old Frodo said. is, but I don't know if we know how old any of the rest of them are. Right. We know that Pippin and Mary are younger. Frodo yeah. does either mention that or it's included in the narration. I don't know if we know that Frodo and Sam are of different ages. Right. Frodo is Frodo is older than at least Mary and Pippin, and he's also I mean, he's also way richer than the two of them or than than the three of them, and and he is 
he straight up employs Sam, right? So, um, and that, that to me, I guess has always been like a, it's, I guess in the back of my mind, I've always been thinking, um, that the friendship between Frodo and Sam is, uh, a little bit more complicated than it appears on the surface because it, I, I mean, it's a friendship that stems from, uh, Sam literally working for Frodo, right. And, and inheriting this subservient position to Frodo from his dad, who was, who was Bilbo's gardener. Right. Um, and that's not to say that that's not like a real friendship. That's not really what I'm saying, but that it's, um, that that was the, that's the, that's the original context of their relationship is, is, is a working one. Right. Um, and one in which the money is always flowing from Frodo towards Sam. Um, so, and then also like, you know, to go back to Mary and Pippin they're I mean, they're clearly like incredibly loyal to Frodo, but he's also this older and richer and mysterious person. Um, who they have to, they have to literally spy on him to figure out what's going to happen. Like in, in chapter five, Frodo's expecting to tell them to surprise them by saying, I'm sorry, I have to leave and go on this, this horrible quest. And they reveal that they've been, they've been trying to figure out what's going on. And they've been garnering scraps of news for years, precisely because they're terrified that he's just going to like up and leave them someday. I mean, like think about the kind of friendship where that's the case, right? I mean, I think that we all have friendships that are sort of like that, where, where you're, you're close with someone who's sort of a loose cannon. Some people are like, everyone is different. Right. And the, and the, the, the funny and the, maybe the beautiful thing about friendship is that, um, despite the fact that no friendship is the same, every friendship is sort of the same, right? Like I have friendships with people who are, um, liable to just vanish for months on end. Right. And, and I'm in left, I'm left in like this Marion Pippin position of like kind of keeping, keeping watch on them, keeping an eye on them, um, doing, you might say like a lot of emotional labor on their, on, on the behalf of our friendship. Um, uh, just to kind of keep it together. Right. And I have other friendships where I am that person. Do you guys know what I'm saying? I've been talking for a long time. No, I know what you're saying. I think like, I, it's, I see it as, um, again, more of, like, almost a family type of relationship where it's, like, no matter what that person does as far as, like, dropping off the face of the earth or, like, just, you know, doing things that in, in a lot of people you would kind of give up on them or not tolerate in, in your relationship with them. You, you kind of, like, just don't care because your connection just runs so much deeper than that that you are willing to put that emotional effort in no matter what they do. This is certainly how I feel about my brother. Yeah, it's... Um, shout out to Navia's brother. Hi there. <laughs> um, I know you're listening. Or you will be. Um, oh, he's going to hate family- that I said that. <laughs> <laughs> Family is such a good way to put it. Actually, I like. I, I wish I'd. I wish I'd given you props when you said that, like, like fully two minutes ago. But, but yeah, family. I think is is a great way to put it because, in, I, I think in like our culture, um, 
friendships tend to be a little bit transient, but family is something where y you really you really do take the bad with the good, right? And there's a clear power dynamic in families. There are some people, like one of my friends said to me recently that like the definition of family includes one person who's, whose selfishness is always driving the trajectory of the unit. <laughs> and <laughs> frankly, it's Frodo. Um, because, I mean, he, not that he's selfish, but he is... Uh, He's everyone. You notice that like all the other hobbits are are doing maintenance on Frodo all the time, trying to like make sure that he doesn't just up and disappear on them. Um, yeah, and I mean he's and, carrying this like huge burden that they know about, right? Right, right. Although I suppose I would wonder too how much of that is situational, right? Like I'm thinking about there are times among my cousins where like yeah we will fully go and attempt to snoop so i have a bunch of female cousins and then one male cousin and we are all deeply invested in whether or not this male cousin is dating anybody at all times <laughs> we are invested right but it's like periodically yeah we'll definitely go and snoop around social media and like spy right insofar as you can spy on somebody who lives on the other side of the globe to try and get more details about his life and what's going on. But then I'm sure there are times when, like, you know, one of the other people in the group drops off. I mean, there are. Like, there are times when it's, oh, okay, we're not going to sort of go around and gossip about him. We're going to go around and gossip about like, one of the other cousins because she's the one who's got something going on right now, right? That needs sneakiness and investigating and like sort of all of us going ooh do we need to like stage an intervention or whatever right but sort of that passing of who the focal point is happens in relationships and just because right. Frodo is the focal point right now doesn't mean like we don't know maybe Pippin had a college crisis and <laughs> like there was a point when all of them were meeting up to be like ooh okay somebody should talk to him what right, are even or the, the jobs in the Shire that you would, like, go to college to train for? I don't know. <laughs> that was a bad, you know. Um, yeah, it was I a mean, bad example. Fine. Not to be, like, disgustingly cute or anything, but I think that in a lot of ways our friendship has kind of transcended this boundary into this, like, familial style of friendship where, like, we don't really have that much in common anymore, but, like, we definitely have each other's backs. Absolutely. I love you guys. Aww. <laughs> I love you too. We love you too. Yeah. I, I think that's a good place to wrap up this discussion. Um, Before we just start crying uh, on each other. That was, that was disgustingly <laughs> cute, you guys. People might vomit listening to uh -oh, this. Oh, I'm going to cry. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to One Does Not Simply. This episode was edited by Navia. You can find us on Twitter at ODNSPod and Tumblr at One Does Not Simply Pod. Special thanks to Andrew, Sneha, and all of our listeners for joining us on this journey. That's you, Wanda. <laughs> oh, God. I'm sorry. It's your line. I was on Facebook. I'm Wanda. <laughs>